Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I appreciate your ongoing patience in uh, figuring out how to continue to do to do church. And uh, one of the things that we're learning is that there's not a way to do church. Uh, church is about God's people being together, worshiping together. And, uh, and so we're, we're making do as best that we possibly can. And I, I appreciate your ongoing resilience to be able to do just that. And those of you who work so hard to keep this time sacred at home and to, to stay up to date. And I, I really do appreciate the work that, it, that goes into uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm tired of having to figure it out. There's so many things that we don't even talk about that we have to figure out week after week. Uh, and I, I appreciate your, your graciousness to allow us to keep trying to, to do that and to keep us in the room, to keep us connected. And, and one of the reasons, I don't just say that as an introduction. I, I, I feel like over the last several months that, that what I do each week isn't preach. It's more of just trying to keep us motivated and, and keep us uh, going going on and it's uh, sometimes it's easy sometimes it's hard and you know you get to that point where the room in here is starting to fill up and we start thinking about okay now what we're going to do and then it, you know it it closes back down again and it's just this constant learning curve of what will people respond to and and all of those sorts of things and one of the things that I think although I believe and know for a fact that God has a plan in all of this one of the frustrating things about this is I also know that Satan is using it as well and so while I have complete confidence in God's sovereignty I also know that everyone won't trust in that and and one of the things that I feel like he is trying to rob us from or of is our identity our identity, our collective identity, our relationships with one another, because that's where we're going to experience the most profound power as a church is when we're together. And we've said that for generations, that we are stronger, we are better together. That's why God called us into a community with each other. And so we keep trying to create that and give opportunities for that, and, and it is it's really hard. And so I have realized over the last few months that truly, there you can work as hard to be as fit and as healthy as you want to, and that's not within your control of whether or not you're going to get sick or die or whatever else. And you can work hard and still not keep your job. And you can be a, a good in relationships, and it's not really going to determine if your relationship's going to be good or not. There's all sorts of things that I have realized we do not control. There's only one thing truly that I believe we control. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to continue to learn. But as of right now, the one thing that we're able to control is, is how we identify ourselves. Learning our identity. I think the one thing that keeps us all in commonality is that we are all capable of forgetting who we truly are. And we juggle this identity of, am I Blaine Rogers? And we work really hard to keep that going, whatever that might mean to me. Or am I a blood-bought son and daughter of Jesus Christ? Am I, am I a child of the King? Is that who I am? Because I'll be honest, there's a whole lot of promises giving to that group of people that sometimes I don't feel like I'm receiving. 
And so it's really hard to wash in and out of who am I and who am I really? And so we spend most of our life trying to set up these litmus tests for identity only to find out we don't really control anything, do we? The only thing we control is how we identify. And even that is becoming to be a hot button issue in 2020 is how do you identify? I go to give blood. They ask me, how do I identify? And I look at them like, can you not tell that I'm a guy? Everything is, don't laugh at that, that's not funny. Uh, everything is suspect, right? Everything is, is up for grabs. And so today I want to talk a little bit about that as we continue in this series even. Is, is we can only control what we have allowed to identify us. And your answer to that question actually gives birth to every other issue in your life. Every, you, know, you know that as a man thinks, so is he. And we think according to our identity. So what is it in your life that you are allowing to identify you? Is it what you do, your work? Is it your, where you're from, perhaps? Who you hang with? You know, we were really hard to determine who do we want to be identified with and our, find our friend group and our peer group and who we're going to run around with or even who we want to. And we start working really hard in order to be able to fit into a particular group of people. Or maybe your individual personality, you're trying to figure out what your personality should be, and then we try to modify our personality to fit. It creates a lot of confusion in a person's life, especially in our formative years. I wager that more important than where you're from or what you do is your relationships. And the most important relationships is... Family. If you really want to know someone, you need to know about their family and their relationship to their family. Some try to live up to their family expectations. Some trying to live down their family expectations. Well, God, in the new birth, God gives us a new family. He gives us new brothers and sisters along with our new identity of being empowered and indwelt by the very spirit and power of God himself. And our new family is the church. And the church of Jesus Christ is where we should find our primary relationship and also our primary identity. And in this past year, that identity has been questioned probably more than any one of us have ever experienced in our entire lives. Well, I think about, I want to go backwards now for just a little while. And in my mind, this sermon is really short. So I hope that your attention span is quick because some of this is going to be all over the place. And when your preacher says that it's going to be a short sermon, you probably should have brought some fish and loaves. But I, I really do hope that that's not the case today. When, when, so I want to just point out a couple of things that we've already partially talked about. And today we're going to wrap a bow since it's Christmas on the whole big gift that God has given us. So when you look at the miraculous birth of Isaac from Abraham and Sarah who were barren, it's impossible to give birth and yet they do. And that begins a relationship between God and his people. And he establishes Abraham who is the son of Eber, 
as the founder of the Hebrews, the Jewish people, God's special called people that he is going to work through to become the missionaries to the every other nation in the world. That's, that's that special calling, that special people. And then, and then you have Manoah and his wife who were barren and gave birth to Samson. And Samson, because of the uh, Israel and the Philistines, Samson paved a way for a new kingdom. The next miraculous birth was Samuel. And Samuel anointed the king of this newly founded kingdom, Israel. And then David moved the capital of God's people to Jerusalem, which in Hebrew means new peace. The next one we talked about was John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist do? The same thing that Samson did. He paved the way for a new kingdom. And then we talked last week about the miraculous birth of Jesus. And Jesus established a new kingdom on earth. And then he moved the capital from Jerusalem to right here in our hearts. And that's where the capital of the new kingdom lives. In fact, he calls it New Jerusalem. New, new peace. Jesus even said the kingdom is both here and the kingdom is also coming. Today we are tasting of that kingdom and that kingdom is constantly being shaken, purified. But there is a kingdom coming. For those who will walk in that identity and they will receive that unshakable kingdom. All of these miraculous births that we've talked about are all for one purpose. One big miraculous birth to end all miraculous births. And no, it's not Jesus's. It's another new birth. It's a birth that is going to restore the Father's relationship with his creation. A better identification. Jesus modeled this for a people. The people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel and Jerusalem. But then what Jesus did is he gave birth through the most unqualified and least likely people of all time. You see what had happened was God had given birth to a chosen people, Israel. But Israel had lived for thousands of years and was incapable of giving birth on its own. It had grown barren. And the father had to turn away from any hope of Israel giving birth to life. They were childless. They were not reproducing like God had called them to reproduce. In fact, every world that they were called into, they took on the habits and the cultures of that world. And they neutralized themselves generation after generation after generation. And so Jesus gave his life and then he placed that life in her exactly like the Spirit had done with Mary. He gave us his spirit in his people and he established the church, the body of Christ that would live on earth forever, even to the end of the ages. You see, it's miraculous because of our unworthiness. You know, we talk about Sarah being unworthy. We talk about Manoah being unworthy, just nobodies. We talk about Hannah being a nobody. If it hadn't been for her giving birth in her old age, we'd never know her name. We don't even know Manoah's wife's name. We don't know Hannah's husband's name. 
just nobodies, just people living their lives, going about their duties, unworthy. Well, lest, lest we forget, let me remind you of a few truths. As I was growing up, we, we heard this uh, called the Romans Road. Raise your hands if you've ever heard the Romans Road. Yeah, well, let me just remind those of you who have heard it before. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't really care how you feel about that. You are a sinner. You have fallen short, metanao, of God's illustrious glory. No matter how good you are on your very best day, the day that you are the most proud, your life is a filthy rag as compared to his righteousness. Romans chapter 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 8. But God shows us his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to take on his identity to identify with you. He took on your identity so that you could come near to the Father. Isn't that crazy? Not because you're good, but because he is good. And then, of course, you have Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes and is justified, but with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, mankind itself was barren like Sarah, like Manoah's wife, like Hannah, like Elizabeth, and incapable of giving birth like Mary. But God used these to set the stage for an incredible birth, the church. In fact, we find out that was his plan all along. Pentecost is the birthday of the church. It was originally an Old Testament festival. Now, I'm going to do just a little bit of history, but I think you'll find it interesting, even if you don't like history. The only festival, in fact, in all of the Old Testament that God told his people to establish, but there's no specific date given for them to do so. It's also called the Feast of Weeks. In Hebrew, it's called Shavuot. From Exodus chapter 19 and a little bit of math, what we find out is Shavuot is the day of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And it comes 50 days after crossing the Red Sea. In Leviticus chapter 23, it instructs God's people to count seven weeks from the morrow after the Sabbath from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. It celebrates perpetually year after year the harvest that God has done. That God has given, specifically the barley. Now, what he says is there are seven days in a week, and you have to count seven weeks. That's why it's called the Feast of Weeks. Plus, when you take into consideration it starts tomorrow, that's seven times seven plus one. 49 plus one is 50. Shavuot is the Greek word Pentecostes, which actually means 50. It was a perpetual reminder because when God split the Red Sea for 40 days, they walked through the wilderness and God called Moses to come up on the Mount Sinai. For 10 days, Moses was on Sinai communing with the Lord. At the end of the 10 days, he came off with the tablets 
written by God's own hand. 40 days of walking, 10 days on the mountain, 50 days. So from the day of the crossing of the Red Sea to the giving of the law to God's people, 50 days. The number seven is God's number. It represents spiritual completeness and his spiritual perfection. So Shavuot or Pentecost, as we would say in English now, but in Greek also, is the day to celebrate what God has done. He delivered us from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. And now he has given us the law. And every year we celebrate God's provision by bringing him a sheaf, a wave offering of, uh, of barley. So in the Red Sea, God paved a way to the new abundant life in a new world. And then 50 days later, the law provided a relationship and God was for us. But I want you to notice something. It wasn't commemorated that day as Passover I mean, as Shavuot, but the crucifixion actually paved a way to a new abundant life in a new world. But 50 days later, the giving of the Spirit provided a relationship that not God is for us, but God is in us. By the way, which is so much better. The giving of the Spirit came on the exact same day 1,400 years later than the giving of the law. It's a better Pentecost. It's a better harvest. It's a better commemoration. You see, Pentecost in the New Testament is also the undoing of Babel. You know, remember Babel is where everybody on the face of the earth had all convened together and refused to separate. God confused their language because of their arrogance. And what it did is it not only did it confused their language, but it also separated people into people groups. And they began to move all over the world and create their own cultures together over generations. But Pentecost is the understanding of languages that begins to unite people again into one people group, Christians. God had actually planned Acts chapter 2 even from the time of the Exodus, and then he brought them to pass in the framework of all of the Jewish feasts. Turn over to Exodus chapter 19 and put your finger in Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to come back to in just a moment. In Exodus chapter 19, uh, we really need the whole context. Time won't allow me to read the whole context, so I'm just going to begin in verse 8. And I'm just going to draw out a few real quick words. I'm not going to make much commentary on Exodus 19. But beginning in verse 8, it says, And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In other words, they are making a commitment to obeying what God has said. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Look down verse 11, and be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, and he shall not live. Come on down to verse 16. 
And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. You you get in the picture of a pretty miraculous experience that God's people were able to see and remember who he is. And when you remember who he is, you can remember what? Who you are. Now let's go over to Acts chapter 2. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, and remember, this is the same day, 1,400 years later. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I want you to notice something strange in Exodus chapter 19. When God does this miraculous presence, people are forbidden from coming near to him. In Acts chapter 2, we learn that whosoever will, let him come into the presence of God. God is giving us better gifts. You see, both events had similar sounds and symbols. You have wind and fire and smoke. You have voices. That Hebrew word for thunder is the word kolot, which actually means uh, voicings or whispers, languages. The fire at Sinai was one fire that appeared to all people. But on the day of Pentecost in the upper room, It was individual fires on each person. No longer is God calling a people to a task. He's calling people to a task. No longer is this Israel's responsibility. It's every believer's responsibility. Everyone gets not a combined effort of God's presence, but a singular source in themselves of God's presence. God is not just with us. God is with me. God isn't just there at the temple. I am the temple. Each one of us. We begin to see the Old Testament unfold in great clarity on this first birthday of the church. God was calling the nation of Israel to go and to make nations of God. But here, now, through the church, God is calling individuals to reach individuals. And individuals to reach nations. The event at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, people were kept away from the fire. But here, the fire comes to people. You see, the law was on the outside hoping to create a change on the inside. But with Pentecost, we are changed from the inside out. And a transformed people, according to Galatians chapter 5, no longer needs a law. In Acts chapter, just go back to Acts chapter 2. 
Every person, the timing was perfect here at Shavuot, Pentecost. Everybody had come to celebrate what God has, has done in their personal lives. And every person in this city knows the story of the last time that God showed up to his people at Sinai. That's one of the reasons they were there to celebrate. They could not approach him. There was fire. There was thunder. There was wind. There was smoke. There were voices. Think about those parallels. And now... Fourteen nations are joined together here in Jerusalem to celebrate this first experience. And now they're experiencing something like it again. Wouldn't that have been very powerful to the Jewish people that would have been there to celebrate this long time ago when God showed up? Can you imagine what they would be saying? They're celebrating the giving of the law for the 1476th time. And suddenly it looks like God is showing up again in the same way he came before. They see fire and smoke and voices. And the place is shaking violently. God is back. After this long history of 450 years of not hearing anything from God, then there is a voice crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist saying, there he is, there is the kingdom of God. And now Jesus is placing the kingdom of God into everyone who will believe. Be hard to forget that experience, I think. What is God telling us now that he's back? It's on this day of harvest celebration that God gives a miraculous birth, his church. Celebrating the harvest of what God has done, now Pentecost begins to be a celebration about the harvest that God will give. What God is going to do, not what God has done. He has been good, but there is a harvest out there. Let's go ahead and celebrate what God is going to do through us. That's what the birth of the church is. It's not reflecting back to the good old days. It's reflecting on the identity of who the church is and the harvest that is already out there. That's what Jesus was trying to set the disciples up for. For three years was to remind them that the harvest is plentiful. But everybody's forgotten their identity. In the Old Testament... Shavuot was the harvest of barley. But in the New Testament, Pentecost is the harvest of souls and the spirits of men and women who will come to him. It was a festival of hope. It was a hope that was evoked by the knowledge that God through his Holy Spirit is at work among his individual people. His individual people choose to come together and have even greater power. God is continuing to do the very work that he established in Jesus Christ. And now that Jesus has ascended, that has exploded and drips out into every one of us. The power of Jesus Christ in every one of us. And everything that Jesus modeled for us, he has now placed that responsibility into us. On Pentecost, we have the fulfillment of the mission of Christ and the beginning of the most miraculous birth. It's the birthday of the church. It's spiritual life. And I hope that you're not offended by this. I just don't know any other way around it. It's the birth, spiritual life breathed into the most unlikely nobodies. 
Pentecost, Jesus gave us the opportunity to have eternal life placed in us. You see, the Jesus even calls it the new birth. We are born again, a second birth. Those of us who are dead spiritually are now made alive spiritually. That is the most miraculous birth of all. Born of water physically and now born of spirit spiritually. You see, our physical lives, our physical birth gives us the ability to give birth to other life. But the same thing is true when our spirit becomes alive. Our spiritual birth gives us the ability to give birth to other life as well. In Acts chapter 2, verse 7 specifically, we immediately begin to see obstacles. You know, so Peter is overwhelmed by this new identity. He understands, he recognizes the spirit is in him and all the fulfillment and the prophecies begin to just click with Peter and he receives this boldness now that he has the spirit. And listen, we really don't see as dramatic a change in Peter throughout all of his identification, all of his identity until the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's like he's a whole nother person in Acts chapter 2. So he gets up and he begins to talk. And immediately, as all of these disciples begin to do the same thing, they're all talking. And what do the people say in verse 7? What do you know? You're just Galileans. Bunch of backwoods nobodies is pretty much what they're saying. No less than four times the scripture downplays people from Galilee. They were really, truly rejects. They were nobodies. They were uneducated they had they had no class. They, uh, in fact, what is what is it that even some of the disciples say early on? Nothing good could come from Nazareth. I mean, this is in in Galilee. Over and over, we begin to see they are the dredges of society. And you think about them knowing anything outside of their own little borders, not a chance. And yet here they are speaking in fourteen different refined languages. And immediately the people are like, well, this can't be true. They begin to downplay them. You are a bunch of nobodies. You see, this is first seen in the most bizarre and the least likely candidates. Think about it. You got fishermen. You got tax collectors, zealots. They are really the down and outers. These are the ones that Jesus chose to place his life into first. Their dialect was... Barbarous and corrupt. They were considered outlanders, unskilled, uneducated. But what was it that Paul said? The weaknesses of Christians make the grace and the glory of God even more remarkable in the success of the gospel. When he, when he said this, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You see, the more we realize that we're nobody, the more God can actually use us. When you think you're a somebody, you're in danger of forgetting who you are. And the whole world is going to hold that as an obstacle because we're going to keep trying to prove ourselves to the world who keeps saying they're nobodies. Yes, I am. I am a somebody. Let me prove it to you. I will change in any way possible. I will work the rest of my life to prove to you that I'm a somebody. And that begins to be the rat race of life is trying to prove to another group of nobodies that you're a somebody. Stop it. You don't need it. That's not really who you are anyway. 
was it that Paul also said to the same church in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Well, Peter continues to talk as do the other disciples. And in verse 13, we find out something else. Ah, these guys are acting like a bunch of drunks. Not only are they just nobodies, they're drunk nobodies. And Peter said, listen, we may be nobodies, but we don't drink at 9 a.m. That's the hour of prayer. We're not drunk like many of you suppose. And then Peter begins his powerful message. He he begins by saying, what you're actually experiencing was actually foretold by the prophet Joel. And he begins to talk about young men dreaming dreams and old men having visions. And he begins to talk about all of these sorts of fulfillment of prophecies. And that's what you're experiencing right now is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And by the way, you killed Jesus in verse 23. And then he shifts directly. from that. How did they kill Jesus? It was the Romans who nailed Jesus to the cross. It wasn't these men who were there that day. But here's how they killed Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us killed Jesus. Because it was our sins that hung him there, not a nail. And then he begins to talk about David and how David began to talk about the Lord and how David began to talk about uh, you know, be, being the, the footstool of the Lord. And he begins to explain all that. And in verse 36, Peter says, And by the way, you killed Jesus who came for you. How did they kill Jesus? Because they rejected him just 40, 50 days earlier. See, what I want you to notice is this. Peter's sermon wasn't great. He references two Old Testament prophets. The testimony, it was the testimony of their boldness. It was the testimony of their confidence. It was the testimony of their radical transformation that people saw in them. It was their new identity that they were walking in. And it says in verse 37 that they were cut to the heart. When they saw the identity of the disciples and they recognized where that power had come from, they were cut to the heart. Now, if we're not careful in all of our Bible knowledge and all of our apologetics, which I'm not against any of that, what we will begin to do is we will begin to downplay and we'll try to cut people to their minds. We'll try to have every answer for them, every obstacle answered in a perfect little bow and and, and perfect little uh, solvable puzzle. Well, does God exist? Well, let me prove to you. What about dinosaurs? Let me prove it to you. What about the age of the earth? Well, let me prove it to you. Well, how can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Let me prove it to you. Let me talk to you about how a fish can swallow a man. And let me talk to you about all of these sorts of things. And we try to, have, we try to cut people to the mind like some way or another their lives are going to be transformed by more information. Let me tell you where people's lives are changed. When they see the power of the Spirit through nobodies. That's where their lives are changed. And that's the one thing we're trying to forget. It's the one thing we have. It's the only thing we can control. And it's the first thing we try to forfeit. I don't, I mean, maybe I'm I'm speaking as, as one, but 
just don't see people cut to the heart anymore. And, we're, and, and listen, we're about to lose the generation that used to see people cut to the heart. We need to start praying that God would use our lives to cut people to the heart. To not be afraid to say the truth, the right thing. To live like Jesus in a world that would crucify him again. Jesus said, hey, you, know, you think they're going to love you? They hated me. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too if you live like me. We're just not cut to the heart anymore. By the way, I don't really believe that that criticism belongs to the world. I don't think the church is cut to the heart anymore. We just go through the motions. Most churches have become social clubs. Churches don't decry anything anymore. Don't speak about transformation anymore. Don't talk about evangelization anymore. We talk about how good everybody is. And how, how you just keep, you know, God's for you. God is for you. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. God is for you. But for a reason, God is for you. Because Christ is in you the hope of glory. Church isn't moved with power. It isn't moved with confidence. It isn't moved with boldness. Not in its culture. We live in fear. We live in restrictions. We live with excuses. But if you look at what God put in this miraculous new birth of the church, it wasn't fear, and it wasn't restrictions, and it wasn't excuses. You see, we are born, but we're not living. Just by the most simple sermon by nobody that obeyed enough to speak, the world was cut to the heart. You see, we got to stop trying to appeal to the mind and start appealing to the heart. You see, they, they moved. It's the same group of people. When they heard Peter speak, they moved from a, you're a nobody to tell us what to do next. The same group of people. All they heard was the spirit flowing out of Peter. They were telling him to shut up, but he refused to obey them, but rather obey the Father. And when they saw the Spirit through him, they said, What must we do to have what you have? Well, for sake of time, I'm going to remind you of Exodus chapter 32. So write write that down, and uh, I'll give you the synopsis of that. Beginning reading in verse 17, Joshua had gone so far with Moses up on the mountain, and now Moses is returning back and rejoins Joshua. And uh, Aaron is just on the outskirts of God's people. Joshua is further along. Moses goes all by himself up on Mount Sinai and spends time with the Lord. You remember the story, surely, if you've been in church much But this is the same day as the giving of the law. When Moses gets closer, Joshua says, what is that I hear? It sounds like we're at war in the camp. And Moses said, nope, it's not war. What I hear is a celebration. And I think what Moses is thinking is if they saw what's on this tablet, they would not be celebrating. I don't know what's going on back there. They catch up with Aaron just on the outskirts. Aaron's there and he says, "Uh, well, uh, one of the... 
biggest, wow, excuses. I mean, it's surprising. If I were Aaron, this would be the most embarrassing thing in the world for him to say, well, they, everybody wanted to make sacrifices and they gave me their gold. I threw all of the gold into the fire and this calf came out. Moses, you know how Moses responds, right? Moses takes the tablet, throws it at the calf, destroys it. And then he tells the leaders of Israel, he says, I want you to round up everybody that was celebrating just now. And I want you to kill them. And I don't care if they were your brother. I don't care if they're your daddy. I don't care if they're your mama. I want you to kill every one of them. Thus saith the Lord. And they rounded up 3,000 people that day and slaughtered them. 1,476 years later, when they're celebrating the giving of the law, and the Holy Spirit shows up, and Peter begins to preach about the goodness that's found in the Jesus that they murdered. 3,000 souls gave their life to the Lord that day. That's the power of the church. If you want to depend upon the law and all of your works, it only brings death. But the spirit that is in you gives life. And then you begin to see what this life looks like. Look, look at what it says in this. You see, in, in, uh, in verse 42, And the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. They devoted themselves to the truth of God's word, and they devoted themselves to God's people. And that became their identity. And out of that identity came this fellowship, this breaking of bread, and this prayers, this concern for each other. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together. They experienced unity in this new identity. And they had all things in common. Everything that mattered, they agreed on. Who is Jesus? Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were generous people. They were known for their generosity. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were grateful Praising God and, as a result, having favor with all of the people. Now, there's already 3,000 of these Christians. From 120 to immediately, they jump up to 3,000 in a day. And they become to devote themselves, wholly committed to the truth that was being presented by the apostles and their care for one another. And out of that came unity and generosity because ultimately we know that God provides and we are why we exist. And they are why we exist. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, people weren't being saved at church, they weren't being saved at the temple. They were being saved at work and at school and at the store and in the street because these people knew their identity and they knew that the Spirit would work through them to accomplish His work and it would produce fruit that remains. Now, 
here's the thing that I want you to recognize. Jesus, through his spirit, gave birth to the church. But every time the spirit uses us to speak into the life of the world around us, there is a, an additional miraculous birth where dead spirits become alive. And it is a birthday that just keeps giving. Or it doesn't, depending on what we do with our identity. What I don't want for our church, churches like ours, and us as individuals, is for God to give us life, and then we become barren, fruitless, incapable of giving life, because we're depending upon our law, our lists, instead of upon the very presence of God himself to speak in and through us. So I want to encourage you. There's not one thing going on in this world right now that threatens any of that in you. Don't believe the hype. Remember who you are. You get to choose how you identify. Make sure that you identify with the church of Jesus Christ and make sure that the church of Jesus Christ identifies with his spirit and that that spirit gives glory and honor to the son and the son's giving glory and honor to the father. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the work that you're doing in us and through us. We thank you that the work that you are doing gives life. And so, Lord, as we look around and survey our own lives, I I wonder what we see. Do we see spiritual life being formed? Do we see fruit that is remaining? Are Are we seeing conversions in our regular, everyday life? Lord, if that's not the case, may we not be barren. May we recognize and may we pray like a Zechariah or like a Hannah or like a Manoah or like a Sarah. May we pray for life to be born through us. Lord, I pray that we would not kowtow to government or politics or viruses or fears or excuses. Lord, may we we be strong. May we be powerful. May we be bold. And may, may we say with commitment and devotion, we ought to obey God rather than men. We carry the mission of Jesus Christ to save the world. And may we not forget who we were. And may we not forget who we are. And Lord, I pray first and foremost that the way that we can remember who we are is to remember who you are. So may we look at your holy heel, Lord. May we look at that new, new peace. And may we walk as citizens of that kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you to stand for just a moment. And I want to encourage you to do this. We haven't done this in a little while. And I know invitations are kind of, kind of weird too. But I want, I want you just to take a moment. And I want, I want you to make a commitment to be devoted. Take a moment to, to just make a commitment. That Lord, I'm going to believe who you say that I am. I'm going to believe what the Spirit is doing in me. And I'm going to walk in that power. So listen, every one of us have a learning curve. And, and I'm going to tell you, as someone who is learning right alongside of you, there's going to be days where we remember easily. There's going to be days where we forget. 
But as we are together, we are able to spur one another on and encourage each other and remind each other who we are. So today, I want to remind you of who you are and what you have and what you have to give away. But next week, I may need reminding. So may we give that as a gift to one another in the new year. And may we be stronger as a result. And may God give us 3,000 souls, not because of one singular experience at an altar at a crusade, but may God give us an increase as we are going out and ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit as we go. Another word, another way of saying miraculous births is this. As you go, make disciples. So that's my commission to you today. Stay just a moment and commit yourself to this singular cause and identity. And I'm sure the Lord is looking for opportunities to raise you up. Lord, as we close our time together, I just pray that as we make commitments to your word and to each other, even to a lost world, Lord, we in many ways are obligated Your word even says that, Paul's words, that we are obligated to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. So Lord, I I just ask that we would not be ashamed of the power of the gospel. And I pray that it would flow through us. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And I just pray that we would continue to walk in your favor. We have it. May we know it. May we learn how to be cut in our hearts and not be so busy worrying about being a somebody here that we forget that you are at work in us. Lord, give us a a quick conscience. May your spirit work quickly when we're tempted to forget who we are. May we be a people known by our unity, our generosity, our forgive, uh, forgive, uh, our forgiving spirits, the grace that we extend and the mercy that we offer, the wisdom of our counsel, the life of our spirit, born again over and over day by day. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the hope that we have. And today we celebrate the hope, not in what you have provided, but we know that you are providing a harvest for us. And may we be the laborers to go into that vineyard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.